Radio Free Brooklyn. Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, it's time for <clears throat> Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. Hey, I'm Dr. Lisa. I had a frog in my throat. That never happened to me on the air first thing like that. That's weird. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, the greatest radio station in um, in in the world. In the world, actually, because I listened to all of them this weekend, and this is definitely the best. So thanks for tuning in. I want to uh, remind you of how great the station is. And we are a nonprofit. That means if you donate money to us, you can put it on your taxes if you actually make enough money to pay taxes. So go to our radio, freebrooklyn.org, uh, slash, uh, uh, donate page and, and, you know, just empty your bank account. You'll get it back. You'll get it back from the government. I promise. So anyway, I'm really excited. Like, I'm actually like a little nervous, a little nervous, excited because this is a big get for me. I have Jason Zineman, uh, the T- New York Times comedy critic on today. So, uh, so like for me, I don't know if you guys give a shit, but I do. So this is a big deal to me. So I need you guys to be like, give me your supportive vibes out there so that I get there's so much I want to talk to him about and I need to get it all in and I don't know if it's going to, ha- you know, whatever. Just send out the good vibes, okay? Also, today, because uh, Jason Zineman is here, we have a special sponsor, Spam. We are sponsored <laughs> by Spam. Have you guys tried Spam lately? You know, Spam has six different ingredients. Did you know that? And only one of them is, it's. they call it meat and pork together. That's one of the ingredients. I'm surprised it only had six, but it's good. It can't be that bad for you. It only has six ingredients. You should go to their website. They've got a great uh, shop, museum and a shop. So go out, get yourself some spam and get yourself some spam swag. Hello, Jason. Hello. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, see, I feel better already. (laughs) I love that it's sponsored by spam i mean what could be more perfect yeah well that's perfect for you totally that's an inside joke folks you got to <laughs> read the book that's a great inside joke so read the book uh jason has written in my mind the seminal book and i think a lot of people feel this way about david letterman it's called letterman the last giant of late night and uh, it was a uh, New York Times bestseller and a 2017 New York Times notable book. Jason is also the first and only really comedy writer for the New York Times. They invented the uh, job. They made the job for Jason. And he's been doing it since 2011. And there's a lot I want to get to today. Uh, there's so much. This book is really, really great. And there's um, so much we could, uh, we could, you know, I don't listen. Do your own fucking research, okay? Just look it up. I put the, I put the uh, link on my page. But what, what really fascinated me about this book is that mostly that Jason was able to get it written because the people that he got to talk to are not easy to get to talk to 
he said that it was a very uh, difficult. I think he said it was painful. Let me see my notes there. Did you say it was painful? That's accurate. That's accurate. I mean, it's it's painful, but it might be painful to finish any book. Well, and you know, some people you think it's easy anyway. So that was, uh, um, so anyway. Uh, but a lot of what um, what what I think is so great about that um, I'm personally interested in is the uh, way that Jason breaks down the creative process that Letterman went through, that the show went through. And how much of that is still in our culture today and has funneled through the culture. And, uh, one more thing about Jason before I, in, before I officially introduce him is that, uh, Jason is a champion of my favorite, favorite kind of comedy, which is the space between, which is the most innovative com, innovative. Jason and I were talking about this. So we agree, I think, if you agree, uh, that it's the most innovative type of creative work going on today. The certain space of comedy that Jason is able to write about that you don't hear about everywhere. And I'm just going to mention a few names of the people. And you can go look them up and you'll know what I'm talking about. Brett Davis, Joe Firestone, Julio Torres, and Tyler Fisher. And recently, Hannah Gadsby, he wrote about, who's an amazing, innovative comedian. And that's where all the, uh, that's where all the new ideas are coming from, folks. So, so get on that. So, Jason, why don't you, why don't we start out with just give us like your, you know, your quick take on the book so that we can, we can get, get deeper into it. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, uh, uh, grew up loving David Letterman. And, um, when I started this, this comedy beat, um, I noticed that so many of the people who I would talk to for this, these major comedians of the day were influenced by Letterman. And, uh, so I set out to write this book that in one sense was to try to kind of explain this figure who was really important to me to, to kind of explain the, the comedy scene today because he's had such an impact and, and three, to kind of explain my, to understand myself in a weird way, um, because he uh, it w- it was not just an important comedian and a, and a late night show, but also um, somebody who had a huge influence on just the way that uh, people talk and act and use, you know, irony and this kind of thing. So, uh, so I, the original idea was to focus uh, kind of purely on the work and analyze the work and it kind of ballooned into a biography when I realized that you can't really uh, just write a book on the work of a talk show host because their work is so inextricably tied with uh, their their life. Um, and uh, so it, it started as a, as a book about kind of Letterman in the 80s, which is when I really started to watch him um, or when, I, when he was on and when he was doing, you know, the, I argue sort of his most adventurous work. Um, but then it, it grew into this, you know, this, this biography. Yeah, that's well put. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sums it up pretty well, actually. So one of the things, I mean, you know, that's really notable is that you kind of um, make it two parts, one where he's really, really innovative. And then when he turns the, it turns into a much more serious talk show where his personality and his Say we should we call it Machiavellian? I'm going to say Machiavellian hubris. How's that sound? Wow, wow! <laughs> I like it. I wouldn't use necessarily. That's a little over promise there, but no. Like but it. you know, it's funny. So you can see how um, that comes out. 
But I wanted to um, get into that because I think it's really, really interesting. And just to give you give you guys and you know like a little bit of a, a, a whatever a basis of what 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 I'm talking about is I'm really curious about how somebody who seems to have so many self-destructive qualities creatively, I'm not talking about anything else, in their work is able to triumph so lo- so hugely. And my frame of reference, I was telling Jason this before you guys got here, is that, um, you know, I used to be in advertising. And so I have seen so many creative directors uh, who, who were known in my book as alcoholic womanizers but still they ruled like they just wanted to they did a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily like how did they get away with it they weren't approving the right things or they would make things late or they would you know they were always screwing things up like i mean one time there was an account that i was totally solid on and uh the creative director insisted on coming to the meeting and we lost the account but that's just one example of millions and millions so I wanted to um, hear, talk a little bit about that. And I wanted to find out like David, how David Letterman, who um, disowned his work, he was always very, very angry or seemed angry and critical. And he was the one who was the face and in charge of everything. But he other people were creating work for him. And he was always negative. Can, do you want to ex- describe that better than me, Jason? No, that's good. That's good. I, I, it makes me think of something. I mean, you were talking about these alcoholic um, uh, ad, ad, ad uh, creative directors because, you know, Letterman's father was an alcoholic mm-hmm. and uh, went to AA. And uh, in fact, he Letterman described, told me about how he, you know, when he saw his dad kind of perform in these AA meetings, he got the sense that that was what he was really like, loved doing, even though he wasn't a performer. But um, and Letterman drank a lot, and then he, I don't think it's um, a coincidence that he gave up drinking, you know, right before his show. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, he had like a, you know, he, he transferred his addiction to something. To the he had show. an addictive personality. Exactly. exactly. You put it better. Exactly. He had addictive personality. And, and uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of his stories about college and before and even early years in, in in broadcasting are about drinking and being drunk and all this stuff but then um to kind of answer your your question you know you, the if you talk to everybody who worked for letterman you know the the one common refrain and is that you know he just always concluded that whatever they were doing was terrible and it was and he was relentless in um you know, and and um, consistent in this belief, despite having huge amount of success. Um, and you know, it, it's interesting because you watch his show, and he's he's constantly he's so self-deprecating. That's so key to his persona, um, and you think it's kind of an act, right? That that's just uh, and um, but he's like that in in off stage, and but off stage, it's it's uh, it's a different animal to be around that had that constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so it is an interesting question that yours, which is like, how do you become so successful and so productive when you're, you're shitting on everybody? You're sh- well, I mean, to be <laughs> sorry, yeah. I, mean, I have no boundaries, but no, no, I'm no, no, no. I mean, but to be yeah. fair to him, he's primarily shitting on himself. Right. 
Now, you could say that that's not, uh, you know, there are other people involved in it. And, and at some point, like, uh, if, you're, if, if you're always saying that I screwed up, is that another way to not take responsibility for anything? I mean, you could make also, but his, 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 his first instinct is always to blame himself. Right, right, right. But I'm going to say that I think that he is not taking responsibility for himself because he's not separating out that other people are doing this work. Yep. And he, he's thinking they, he's blaming, this is my problem with Letterman. He's blaming them for sucking. <laughs> you know, like it would be like, you know, you bring in your ads and they don't like any of the ads because they don't like any ads. So, that that's what I don't understand. That's what I I don't see. Did he have any awareness of that, or he had some awareness? Um, and I think what the what you described is how the people who worked for him interpreted. Because you're constantly trying to make somebody happy, who's if that's an impossible task. Um, but you know, there's a way to look at it that it's like that in its positive incarnation, it produces an environment of demanding high standards mm-hmm. uh now there sure. are there are uh which i think you know is also what people who work from would say that you had to really bring your a-game and if you reject 95 percent you know 99 percent of the ideas that you know the cream runs to the top um they also had negative aspects of it as well both mm-hmm. per- personally and professionally and i think if you look at sort of the decline of the show um they are it's inextricably tied to this quirk of his personality i mean my my the example of this that I think is really telling is uh, Letterman hosting the Oscars, right? Mm-hmm, right. which is a in the popular imagination is this huge disaster. But uh, you know when you I went back and looked at it and the reviews of Letterman uh, uh, Oscar were mixed. The ratings were actually really good, <laughs> and so I was like, well, why does everyone think that it was such a disaster, such a catastrophe? And I um I had a guy who does research who track down every joke he ever made about the Oscars. Wow. And, you know, if you look at like the day when he came back, he was sort of made some mild self-deprecating jokes about how he did. And then like a month later, he was sort of, you know, a little harsher. And then a year later, he's still talking about it and he's talking about it like it was a genocide. And then two years later, he's still like three years later. And it was, you could really track how this myth of Letterman's catastrophic Oscar was created by himself in a way that actually really hurt his career. Yes. Um, so that was a, I think, a good example of maybe there was some short-term gain in that it was funny thing to make fun of, but it was long-term, it was self-destructive. Right, right, right. But also what bothered, what I personally, this bothered me, like especially uh, with Meryl Marco when you were talking, You have there's a great interview online, I'll post that too, uh, that you did with Meryl Marco, blah, blah, blah. But she and a lot of other people consistently brought him great work mm-hmm. that they would have to talk him into. And that's what I don't understand. Like, how could he not, how could he not see that? Like, what was that about? Can you yeah, I mean, comment that, on that? That's, that's one of the big questions that I started this book with, which is like, all right, look, here's this guy. He's a, a frat boy from Indiana, Midwestern. Um, his ambition, he loved Johnny Carson, the most sort of, mainstream showbiz figure um how did he become this radically experimental performer who represented for many people including myself 
sort of the quintessential New York cool. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up, right? right? Uh, and um, so I think part of it is that it was the influence and I tracked in the book of people like Meryl Marco and others who gave, who talked him into ideas. But also I would say part of the reason that someone like me who grew up, you know, in D.C. and suburban Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, then D.C., um, you know, there were certain kinds of New York cool that didn't seem accessible to me. Uh-huh. That, that seemed like, Oh, they, they seemed like, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of East Village brand. Hit, of, like a hip, like what we call hipster now? Yeah, there was like, I, I, not that I didn't like it. It just it did, didn't seem like something you didn't that relate I, to I, it. Not, I just or, couldn't aspire to be that, right? <laughs> Letterman had a kind of New York cool that seemed reachable to me. So uh, in a weird way, it was, he, uh, while obviously Merrill and these other his writers were key, but the, the the prism through which that came was also really important. Mm-hmm. The, the, that Letterman, I think, for a lot of people all over the country, mm-hmm. um, was a kind of New York cool that seemed accessible, rela- accessible and relatable. Yeah. And that, to me, is a key to success. So you needed the people, you know, like Marco, who was, like, you know, a Berkeley art yeah. uh, professor, Brilliant. Um, to uh, really encourage him to take risks. And I think, you know, the way I put it is that, like, yeah, I think intellectually Letterman wanted to be like Johnny Carson, but his instinct, mm-hmm. and this is true of people all over the place, is like, you know, of all different, his instinct was deeply irreverent. His mm-hmm. instinct, and you see that throughout when he was in mm-hmm. radio and he was in college, the way his relationship with people, his instinct is to say, uh, you know, fuck you to the authority, to disobey, to be, um, mm-hmm. to be difficult um, for good and bad. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, you know, in his, in his, in his uh, personal life, you know, like I start the book with this scene of his first marriage. Right. And he's basically making a mockery of this <laughs> marriage. So to him, you know, for most people, you get married, you treat it with a little bit of respect, <laughs> Unbelievable. right? Unbelievable, But yes. he spends the whole time making fun of the whole thing and, you know, uh, talking about, um, you know, you know, is any, you know. He was drunk, right? He was basically, yeah, yeah. The, uh, so, but he, but, but I mean, he wasn't trying to restrain himself. Right. He was turning the whole thing. He he saw the institution of marriage as a perfect target for comedy. Right. Right. As any very self serious institution right. would be. Right. So um, he, he, that is built into his DNA. Right. So I mean, he had gotten, and I learned all this from your book. Like he had gotten fired from like almost all the jobs he had until he really succeeded because you know he couldn't he couldn't function. Do you know he was like a game show host and weather guy, and he wouldn't do it the way that they needed him to do it for the job, and then he would get fired. So he really couldn't compromise. Um, But what? Here's what I don't. uh, Here's something I've been struggling with. So in the early years that we. I think we both like the innovative, fun years. He really did. People did manage to get through to him. A few writers and Merrill like got him to do the things that wound up really being great. And then at a certain point, he wouldn't listen to anybody. And how do you think that he like what happened to him? What do you think happened in his head? Right, right, right. Well, it's I mean, that's a great, great question. And I think it's like a complicated I think the some of it's just your classic story of fame and money insulating. Do you think you. he just got overconfident? I don't know if I would say overconfident, but I would say that he um he oh, there's two different schools of thought, right? Merrill's uh one is that he um 
he stopped taking risks and he, you know, felt mm-hmm. like he needed to reach a bigger audience, which he was going on, right. on 1130, et cetera. Uh-huh. But then there's another school out, which Meryl Marco articulated, which is that he was just evolving to be what he always wanted to be, uh. which was a, which was a more spontaneous improvisational, uh, performer like Carson who wasn't doing, uh, wasn't messing with the form wasn't taking an experiment, wasn't risking. Oh, he was, hmm. was, and uh, was just kind of ad-libbing and react in the moment. And, you know, they're both theories have, have some clout to them. Hmm. I mean, I mean, one thing that I noticed that, that um, two different head writers told me is, which I think rings true to me is that Letterman is at his best in reaction to something. Right. right? He's not a like creative, he's a creative performer in the sense that he's going to, you know, invent something right in front of you. He, his creativity comes uh, from, mocking right. something else or commenting on something else. And uh, so he needed something like a wedding to, uh, to work off of or Paul Schaefer or right. some, to, for his you know creativity to flourish. Right, right, right. And then after a while, he but I think he also like just couldn't stand being around. Like he didn't want to deal with people as David Letterman. He became like all the remote things that yes. he did. And then when he became famous, he didn't want to go out and do them because... At that point, he was David Letterman. I think that he couldn't, that affected him, his fame. That's true. He definitely did, yeah. Also, another thing you pointed out that I just wanted to note is that when he went from NBC to CBS, he went from like basically a theater that's as big as a high school auditorium to a 450 seat theater. And I think that had a really big effect on his performance. Do you? Oh, totally. And I, I don't think people real, realize that. I, in fact, think that the, might be the most important really? aspect of it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Just well, someone who has been in both those rooms, it's just, it's a completely different, you know, they, you're in like one of those studios. The studios are so much smaller than you think. Yeah. And they have a kind of clubhouse feel and they, it, it's, uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's like you're talking to someone with mm-hmm. great intimacy, um, mm-hmm. and which you felt watching it it's mm-hmm. like uh where you know the ed sullivan theater is this grand mm-hmm. t- high ceiling it's actually a terrible room for comedy uh, is it yeah yeah i wouldn't i, I in fact I, I think colbert is a similar problem yeah uh, uh-huh. that he i think went from a small studio to this theater and the in a lot of ways your environment dictates your show you gotta you have to make you have to make your performance bigger that's so interesting that you say that because i'm well full disclosure so i was on stupid pet tricks in 1986 and i have to say that the uh, height of the show by the way <laughs> the create i don't know if it's a coincidence but the year you were on it i argue I, the, the greatest uh, year of letterman no i mean i can't tell you what a big honor that was for me and like it was a huge experience but um the thing about that i noticed uh, when I had gone out there on the stage, I mean, this was huge for me, of course. But when I went out there on the stage, it was tiny. It was really seriously like being in being on hmm. stage in high school or on a high <laughs> school theater or something. And that stuck with me really a lot. So I can imagine that's interesting that you also think that was a big difference. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. I mean, it's a, just as some uh, covering comedy and, mm-hmm. uh, for a while now. I've become very sensitive to how a room changes mm-hmm. uh, the laughter, the audience, the mm-hmm. environment. It's really radically different. Well, I had um, a comedian once say that like comedy, comedi- comedy, comedians play the audience. It's like their instrument, right? Have you heard that? Uh, not, not exactly. But <laughs> who do, who, I'm going to... 
who was that? I can remember. I'm think of his name later so I can give him a shout out. But yeah, yeah. Um, also, you know what I wanted to talk about? I want to talk about uh, David Letterman's sexuality. Oh, but before we do okay. that, I want you just to describe a little bit of the process of putting the book together so that we all understand how much direct contact you had with Dave and stuff like that. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I had, uh, I started the book without a guarantee that I would, uh, talk to him, although they were very cooperative in terms of giving me information and, and tapes. His and stuff. people. His people. Right. So the, so it was a, one of the reasons it was painful is because it's a very different book if I don't talk to him than if I do talk to him, sure. but you have to kind of just, because I didn't know, I had to report all around him. And really, I think it made me work harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, eventually he agreed to talk to me. And uh, this was, but by this point, I, I had done so much work. It turned out to be a blessing in disguise because by the time I had the interview, I was, you know, so prepared and I was not on a fish. I was the opposite of a fishing expedition. So I mm-hmm. sat down and we had like, if I could do it over again, it was a four-hour interview. He would have gone for eight hours. So how did that come about? Did you go to his house? Was it like no, it was set a- up way in advance or how did it come about? It happened pretty quickly. It was like I heard he would do it and then they, they came. It was, it was at a restaurant across from Manhattan Theater Club. Re- restaurant. Yeah. It was like <laughs> it was early in the morning. It was I think it was like before the restaurant either opened or before it got busy. Uh-huh. But it went on so long that by the time it was like lunch hour, it was pretty busy. And it is... You know, I was very locked in, but Letterman is one of these famous people who is like kind of reclusive. So people go kind of berserk when he's in the room. Yeah. So there's like a tornado around him. So that I had to kind of zero zone that out. But, right. but, uh, but yeah, so he, so it was in a, uh, was in a restaurant and, and, uh, as I said, he, once you, I was worried cause I've read a lot of interviews, but he's very prickly, but once you get him engaged, he's a spectacular interview. Yeah. He's, oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. He doesn't dodge anything. And he oh, was, really? uh, hmm. Um, so yeah, so it, it went, I mean, I remember I spent so much of the time preparing, cutting out things that I would talk about. And if I could go back and do it again, I would, I would prepare for an eight hour interview instead of a four. Wow. Wow. So when you spent time with him, did it feel like you, was he the person you imagined him to be or how was that? What, what, what was this vibe like? That's a good question. Um, he pretty much was, you know, he was pretty cerebral and serious. So mm-hmm. but I, that didn't, I've been, yeah. talked to enough comedians to, to expect that. Sure. Um, he, um, you know, I found him very likable because he was, uh, you know, he was, he was serious and smart and not on, you know, he right. was, he was right. real. He liked, he was real. He wanted mm-hmm. to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I mean, this will come off like it was, it's, it's boastful, but it truly is not, which is that, um, you know, he was having a good time because, right. He had been off the air for eight, nine months. Right. And I really think that it was like talking about his show, which is something obviously he loves and cared about with somebody who knew it and knew his life. Right. In some cases better than he did because right. I was talking to people he would, you know, he knew back in high school and, and before in middle mm-hmm. school that he wanted to know about. He was really oh, that's curious. interesting because oh, you had dug up his past for him. It was like it was like a, it was like a this hilarious. Is your life. It really was it really hilarious. Was. That must have been awesome. Was that an amazing? That must have been an amazing experience. It was. It was. It was. I mean, it was. It was stressful. Um, but uh, and you know, it's like my job is not to get him to. It's not to get get these people I talk to to like me. It's, it's right, to get them to reveal course. themselves. But it helps if they right. like you, right? Because then. 
Um, and I, as soon as I could tell that he was enjoying himself, I like the interview was supposed to go for an hour. Wow. Was so, but I, I, I knew pretty early, okay, this is not going to be for the, right. he, he, he's, he's what, a, what about his level of consciousness, emotional consciousness? Did he seem to, um, have perspective on who he was or how he was seen or how people saw him, people at work for him, stuff like that? Yes, but there's a limit. So if I was to argue against what I just said about him being open, right, right, right this is what I would say, which is that his every time I asked about a thorny question, like right. say his affairs or something, mm-hmm. or turning down ideas like you're talking about, or mm-hmm. and again, I he never didn't answer. He never dot, dot went off right. the record. Never right. did. Um, his response was always to blame himself. Very. In the extreme, right? So he didn't justify, uh, you know, ratings losses or, or say it was the mm-hmm. spot, you know, the mm-hmm. network. He didn't NBC executives, which he of mm-hmm. course lambasted on the show. Uh, he didn't, you know, he spent a lot of time lacerating himself over the affairs mm-hmm. he did to his family. But it did make me wonder, right? I'm going back over the transcript. If you're for, if you blame yourself for everything. Is it a way, as you you know, is it a way to not deal with the specifics of, right. of uh, because it's that sort of, you know. Yeah, I mean, it seems underneath all of that, there is um, some lack of consciousness, but it also seems creatively he's so driven by his instincts that he doesn't, he doesn't like, he doesn't think about it that way, I guess, in a certain way. I don't know what, the, I'm not, I'm not articulating that, but like. He do, he doesn't seem like the most reflective person. No, no, that's I mean, all I'm in, saying. In, in, to some degree, he is, but not ultimately. I think he prefers to keep it on the surface. Yeah, I think yeah. that's his. And I and this is we talked about this before, which is like he's a Midwest, a repressed right. Midwestern guy, right? And his um, personality, although his personality is very guarded and on the surface and polite and mm-hmm. and, and in the way mm-hmm. that, but. And I think one of the great accomplishments of his show, and it's one of these great ironic things, is that his his persona on screen, which is highly ironic and self-deprecating, allowed him to reveal himself in a way that I don't believe he ever would right. in person. Maybe, ah, maybe in a shrink's office he could. Oh, but makes sense. Through, and at people who watch his show, big you know fans, I think, understand this. Like you could, if you've watched him every night, you could see his mood. You could understand what he was feeling. You could, you could. Now it was often. Through him saying the opposite of what he thinks, right, right, right. Um, you know, when he would come out and say, "Welcome to the extravaganza," you knew what he meant is that this is the opposite Bullshit, of extravaganza, right? right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, his he needed that layer of irony mm-hmm. to reveal himself through this kind of Midwestern. Right. Do you have any song. idea where his self-loathing comes from or anything like that? It's it's really de- It's really imperme- uh, permeates him. Yes, that's who he is. Yes, I think I think the. Um, you know, the standard answer would be his mom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were to be put your sort of pops, like that, is that his, you know, and he said, you know, he always says about his mom that she's, uh, she, you, know, you know, she's very, she's not the most uh, giving in terms of praise, right? Right. Uh, she's right. very withholding and very, you know. Right. Um, so. And his father was an alcoholic. So that combo was probably, who knows what happened there. But you do give, um, I did get a sense of his mother and I had, you know, seen her on TV and stuff, but I, the book really does give you like kind of a sense of that him and his mom a bit, I, yes. I mean, quite a bit. So, uh, 
that that's another reason to like read the book or audiobook at why I like I did. Um, okay, so I have one more question about Letterman and then we're gonna uh talk about other stuff too. But um oh, there's actually a question. Okay, before we get to this last question, I wanted to ask you so I love audiobooks and I loved audiobooking this book. Now, uh-huh. how come you didn't read it? They didn't ask me. Get the fuck out. I would have done it. I would have done it. Are you kidding? They they had like all these professional audio really? people. Yeah. They gave me like a they gave me like three options. Really? Yes. What did you think about that? Uh it's funny. Now that you mentioned it, I never really thought about it, but I guess I would have liked to be asked. On the other hand, I do know I knew some people. I knew I knew one person in particular who was like a professional audiobook person and she uh, she recently passed away in fact uh-huh. um, um but she was a genius at it she was brilliant at it she was an actress and she um uh w- but she prepared for these uh audiobooks like an actors would for a role like she right. said, and in talking to her about it i did develop a respect for that form and how it's completely its own thing that i i wouldn't i don't have the skills of the craft to pull off all that said I, uh, my first book, um, I remember the guy who did the audio book was this guy who did like the Mets announcing and he has uh, that like big booming voice and it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Bruce Springsteen's autobiography. I mean, although it's Bruce, you can't criticize it, but yeah, he's not good at it, but I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed, Jason. I'm just going to say that because <laughs> I think you would have, I'm a big memoir audiobook fan because I love to hear the person who wrote it and I'm, I'm disappointed and. Uh, you you audio you audio ball people made a big mistake there, and you better re-record it if it's up to me. So I just wanted to ask. Let's talk about Letterman's sexuality, and then we can move on. Okay. So Letterman seems like a big fucking sexist dick. So he he definitely uh seemed like a woman. Like it's really uh, interesting to me, and I, and I wonder if you can put some insight on this. So what Letterman seems like to me is a real like he's ex- kind of almost both extremes like he presents as somebody who is just real like almost like a boy who doesn't even care about girls sort of right. and then he also had a relationship with Meryl Marco which must have been a real peer intense relationship but then he wound up leaving her and then the other women he had relationships with were um, women that um, he had a lot of power over and then at the same time in his later years, and I didn't even notice this because I wasn't watching the show then, but he turned into like a real lech. So can you, can you, can you, what, what, what kind of dude was he? Like, was he after the chicks? Was he confident with women? Can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big theme of the book of Letterman and women. I mean, it goes through the whole book. I mean, his whole career. Mm-hmm. And he has a, you know, he was a serial monogamist i mean he would get, be in these long-term mm-hmm. relationships at the same time he always would you know he would cheat he, he would cheat and he certainly you know if you talk to people from the comedy store in the 70s he was you know he 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 would you know was a womanizer for sure um the um but 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 he went from i would say merrill strikes you know most people would say was an anomaly yeah um and Mm -hmm. um you know he he in the way that i you know we're talking about how you can't write about someone's uh life without work without talking about their life or talk show host because they're so blurred that was very literally true in terms Uh. of sex life because or romantic life because he 
you know, he started the show with his longtime girlfriend and then a woman, he cheated on her with a woman in production who he eventually married. And then he cheated on her with a woman who was started out as an intern. And then, uh, so, so his relationships and his work were inextricably right. combined. And there were other, you know, when the story of his, of his blackmail and the machine came out, there were, you know, other people from work who came out. Or right, about, right. But they were all people who were much lower status. Yeah, so that's what's weird. It's like he, he it, it seems like he couldn't deal with women who were his peers. Because you figure Letterman is, uh, was one of the most powerful, famous people in America. He could have been... He could have been with... Julia... Everyone thought he was with Julia Roberts or he was yeah. with some... But it was... He could have dated a babe, but he couldn't handle it because he really didn't like himself. That's what it comes... I'm just going to just simplify that down <laughs> to like one sentence. So I'm going to do... Uh, remind people again that they're listening to the greatest station in the entire the entire world... Uh, and it's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, and I'm Dr. Lisa from Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit every Thursday, 2 to 3, and I'm here with the uh, one and literally only one and only uh, New York Times comedy critic, Jason Zineman. Uh We've been talking about his book that he wrote about Letterman, which you should get from Amazon Letterman, The Last giant of late night and uh now we're gonna oh oh yeah so go and download our apps because then you can take radio free brooklyn with you everywhere and we have like such a great variety of shows it's like having your best friend in your pocket that's my line radiofreebrooklyn.org slash iphone or radiofreebrooklyn.org slash android so let's talk about jace jason sign him in the, the comedy critic so what's it like like First of all, I want to tell you my impression of Jason, folks. <laughs> oh, no, okay. <laughs> I'm excited to hear this. Okay. First, and Jason, Jason is, I'm a lot more comfortable with Jason than I expected to be. He's very, like, normal, down-to-earth, not full of himself. Okay. So I'll put it to you that way. But he also seems, like, just really conventional to me. I'm not saying he, I don't know him, but he just, he's got, like, a nice shirt. He's, you know, he's got that, like, he. You know, he's just like a regular nice guy. He's married to like a major lawyer um, and he's got two kids. And of course, they live in Park Slope. And now they're thinking of moving to Prospect. Whatever they need. Like your kids go to private schools. No, no, no. No. Good for you. So so you seem really you're making me sound very boring. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, not when I mean, you know, you I. You haven't bored me yet. I'll take boring. I'll, I'll take it. I'm not no, complaining. No, but you know I'm what? You just seem really, really normal. Yeah. I mean, when you think of uh, comedians, you know, the comedians are freaks. And you're... So anyway, you seem just really normal and, like, stable and all that. And so um, what's it like being involved in the comedy world? Has being writing and being that involved in comedy... Uh, affected you, affected your view of the world, affected your view of your own work. Uh, and also, uh, you have a theater background. You're not like a comedy, and, and you've written a book on science fiction and stuff. You're not like a gung-ho comedy person, even though like you're great at writing about it. So go, yeah, yes. tell us about that. Uh, I mean, it's been a pretty, I mean, it's the covering comedy is the, is the you know, the happiest I've been in my career. And oh. I, but uh, it's really been a fascinating world to dig into. And I think like, uh, um, I mean, part of that is uh, 
that it's the, it's the sort of this new area. And, uh, so there's a lot of freedom, but, um, I think to, to, to your, your question, I guess, is that I don't, I've never thought of myself, even though like I grew up in my, you know, around the theater, my mom ran a theater and I, and I, then I covered theater. Um, and now I cover comedy. I've never thought of myself. I've sort of aggressively not thought of myself as like part of the theater world or part of the comedy world. Mm. Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, theater critics who will refer to themselves as part of the theater community and theater people do. They'll say, Oh, now you're in the theater community. Ah. And I'm always like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not part of the theater community. I'm not, part, even though you, you know, that's a little bit of a you know pedantic point, mm-hmm. it, but I like, I think of myself as a journalist mm. first mm-hmm. and the kind of journalist and, the, and with all that, it all comes from that. Like, I, like being, uh, like having your, if I'm really investigate, like you're, you're, it's great to hear somebody say like what you look like and what you sound like. <laughs> Seriously, because it's important. You know how you come off is is important. Right. And I think you know, um, you you could be a good journalist in all different kinds of ways, and and you can have all different right. kinds of personas can be effective. Of course. Um, and uh, and I and you know I, I, when I was a in a kid. In summers, I worked in sales, which I often talk about as like I worked. I sold some theater subscriptions over the oh. phone, and in a lot of ways, I think that was the best education I had in terms of being a journalist because oh. you've got to learn how to talk to different kinds of people. Right. And um, so, anyway, my the, all of this is to say that like I find it effective to be not have like a really. I, I think a good journalist is really curious mm-hmm. and is open to wildly different kinds mm-hmm. of things. Uh, and can make people feel comfortable mm-hmm. because uh, you know you can adapt and be different to different. Things. If you right. and so um, so yeah, I am. I, that's not to say I'm lying. I am conventional. I do live in Park Slope and I have two kids. <laughs> and I'm bo- There's a hundred percent true guilty as charged. But it also happens that um, uh, if I I I there I'm I don't think it would be effective as like interviewing comedians. If uh, if I was like playing the funny guy, I'd make a big uh, attempt to to not try to be funny or pretend that I'm funny. Uh-huh. One, because I think it will it will backfire. <laughs> two, uh, two, I don't think that's my job. And um, uh, and as it happens, most comedians right aren't interested. Are yeah, they're stage. not. Just, they're right. not like that, anyways. So, um, but I do think that like the 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 most interesting thing in the like what you're doing right now, mm-hmm. interviewing is uh the hardest part of my job that's and the most interesting part of my job hmm. like that's the part that i think the most about hmm. that how to inter- how to talk sit like in the same room with somebody and get them to reveal themselves hmm. right mm-hmm. and sometimes talking a lot can can do the trick like telling re- being vulnerable and revealing something about yourself or mm-hmm. something that's weird about yourself can help somebody else open up but i find more often than not where i fail is when i don't i don't know to stop talking i don't ah. i don't know when to listen like listening mm. is such an important underrated mm. skill yeah um and when i listen to myself doing interviews the parts when i'm always angry at myself or when i'm like oh just shut up just like <laughs> just shut up just listen just listen harder mm. uh there's like various degrees of listening. so like so <clears throat> you know i i have always been a critic and a reporter um mm-hmm. and i right. think one helps the other and and my in terms of reporting um, you know, I, 
there's nothing that makes me happier. I mean, I just did a, I've done a couple reporting piece, uh, a couple uh, reporting trips recently. Than like going into a new world where mm-hmm. I know nothing about, mm-hmm. and just listening to people talk mm-hmm. and trying mm-hmm. to understand. I was just in Las Vegas, right? They have a very different style than New York comedy. These like mm-hmm. Las Vegas, and you know, <laughs> I like I talk to all these comedy club owners over there, and, and it's just in, people. In my opinion, like there's nothing more fascinating than people, just right. ordinary people. They're endlessly fascinating, mm-hmm. and and people love to talk. They love to, mm-hmm. to talk and and to you don't have to work, work that hard. You just have to get them going. <laughs> exactly. Listen to me. I like to talk. Right? <laughs> no. We, yeah. I mean, that's what we do. Yeah. So um, but like also, I mean, you're not a cool dude. Like, you know, and I imagine like like what happens with comedians? Like, do they trust you? What if they're all in the green room, like snorting coke and you're there? Do you see that kind of stuff? I mean, I haven't seen him starting coke, but I'm, I, I'm per, I think it's a, I think it's really a good thing for me to be seen as an, it's it's funny. I've never thought about this, so I'm, this is the first time I've ever articulated it. But I'm so comfortable being seen as not cool. <laughs> yeah, I think that's much. I think that is much better um, than trying to seem cool. Uh huh. Because you know, one thing. I, it's funny. I'll, my uh, I'll illustrate it. My, when I was a telemarketer, uh, in was 16 years old. My persona was a little bit weird. I had this theory that people are so skeptical of, of salesmen, particularly telemarketers, right, right. that if you did what other people in the room were doing, which is like act like your little brother or like the kindly old aunt, people see right through that. Right. So what I would do is my persona was as like a, a pathological lying shyster. So I'd be like, you know, you know is uh, Miss Levy there? Yes, it's Miss Levy. Miss Levy, this is your lucky day. Like, <laughs> you might say, how can I get five plays for only $95? Well, I'll tell you. And so by doing that, by presenting myself as a buffoon, essentially, people thought, oh, this guy is, is an idiot. He's like, he, I, I, I feel superior to him. Ah. Right? And, I, you know, he's harmless. And he's, ah. like, kind of, he's kind of funny to laugh at, right? And then they start talking. And once they start talking, you have them. Right. And, and uh, it, it's not that different in that if you're, um, you know, if you if you try too hard, if you let them see you as just like kind of, you know, someone who's not, uh, you know, as a, a journalist sitting there and not trying to be their friend, mm-hmm. um, I find that you can get them to be more comfortable and open up. Mm-hmm. You don't have it. It's as I said, like with Letterman, it helped that he liked me. And but it's not always the case. Oftentimes I find like that you don't need to get someone to love you or to feel like they're exactly like you. Sometimes right. it helps, but not right. always. Right. Right. But but they know like you're not trying to be like cause a lot of people in your situation would want to be one of them or hang out with the comics. They know you're not you don't play that role. I think they're more. I mean, look, I come in with a lot of a lot of advantages, like the, the New York Times. Yeah, right. Big, Your press uh, pass. <laughs> exactly. Like, if anything, the New York Times reputation is not cool, right? Uh, so the New York right. Times, to the sense, to the extent that the New York Times um, is a is a hugely valuable thing that, sure. I, that I'm associated with in terms of getting access and people. Right. Like, if I'm trying to play up the New York Times, it doesn't help for me to be like. And hey, you want to do some coke? Like, it's, yeah, like, right, it's right. better for me to be like right. well, the most New York Times version of myself that I can because they're uh-huh. more impressed by that than whatever I could pull off. Of. Right, right, right. So how is it like your your wife? Um, so your wife is a lawyer um, and she's like incredibly uh, successful. She's a folks. She's like a Harvard, Yale lawyer. <laughs> That's so crazy. How, yeah. what, is, what is she doing with you? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> she's, uh, you know, you know, she's, uh, 
she's, she's so, punching down, as they say. <laughs> no, but how does your family, and you have two kids, and um, so, you know, I picture, like, your life being fairly stable and normal and pleasant, actually. And, you know, like, your house is probably, like, you probably have, like, you don't run out of toilet paper, things like that. Your kids are <laughs> no. fed. They go to bed on time, that kind of stuff. So how do you square, like, how is the life of, like, your job and all that other stuff? How does your wife look at it? You know, what do your kids think about it? How do they, do you ever take them? Tell us about that. Hmm. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, my, my kids, I don't know. It's interesting. I've tried, I, I've, uh, I've done some stories where my kids are involved, like mm-hmm. taking them to shows and, and stuff. And they are how old? And Four and nine. Like boy, Four. girl. Uh, two girls. Two, two girls. girls. Um, and um, I don't know. I do think that like stability, I think in, you know, I, people don't think of like being a critic as being someone who has to like, it, it, people understand that artists have to take risks. Right. But but journalists also have to take risks. Right. You know, and uh, and there's different kinds of risks you have to take. But but there uh, it's a public job. You take a lot of right. criticism. You have to right. you have to if you just do the expected thing, you're not going to be as successful and mm-hmm. you're not going to be do as good a job. And um, I do think that, um, you know, certainly I was raised with a very confident mother jewish mother right um who is an artist who i think i got a lot of confidence from uh, uh-huh. um but then also having like a stable personal life enables me to i think take, take more, more risks risk in my professional see life. guys see that's what i'm saying get out of the basement and put those marijuana pipes away <laughs> no, see I'm, what I'm, I'm saying i'm not trying to say don't smoke marijuana i'm not saying no that, i know but... that i know that well <laughs> it's only it's two o'clock in the afternoon that's why i said that <laughs> that's just me no no but i do think stability uh, uh, uh i i value stability a lot because i'm not someone who's just innately that stable and i have uh gotten my stability it's hard one and i think that um it's really valuable and a lot of people don't appreciate it enough and and i, w- I think it can really make your work more creative and better where i'm not with the, the the flip side of having a uh you know lawyer successful lawyer wife who works a lot is that you know she's like always working so i like to have two kids, I've, I've found, you know, I have to do more childcare. Right, right, right. And that is a new thing. Like, I'm writing a book with kids, with having to mm-hmm. look after kids is much harder than writing a book without one. Right. Uh, and I'm that's sure. Uh, yeah. And I've done both. Uh, I can't, you know, that's, uh, and I would say, you know, like having kids definitely changes my perspective on this stuff much more than having getting married. Really? How come? Like I worry that I get. If I'm really honest, I I I I worry that I get worse in my job because of kids. I worry that I get. I, I think having a stable life can make you take more risk, but I don't. Sometimes I worry that having kids does make you more cautious mm-hmm. and more conservative and more sentimental. Mm. Which is like I'm very sensitive to now seeing what works of art work on me in ways mm-hmm. that wouldn't have before, and it, it pisses me off. Like it doesn't like I, that 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 bothers me. Sometimes. What do you mean? What do you mean? Like I am such a like any any work of art which involves like you know father daughter uh huh stuff. I'm, oh. I'm I'm like bawling. I just watched uh-huh. like a, I just watched. There's this uh-huh. terrible Adam Sandler Netflix movie that uh-huh. just came out like a father of the bride kind of thing, and like it's a bad movie, but I'm like it's it's working. It's manipulating uh-huh. me, and I'm much 
more susceptible to that. And and that is not a <laughs> that's not I don't like that about about mm-hmm. it. Um, and how, oh, sorry. I just was just thinking. I wonder how your wife explains what you do at her job. How do you think she? <laughs> what do you think she says? I don't know. That's a good question. I the uh, I, I I think the truth is lawyers are, and I can say this without any fear because they all know it. They're deeply boring. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, so they think that about themselves. Yes, they do. They uh, think that they're very, I didn't they, know that. So anyone who's doing anything like oh. writing or, or creative, yeah. whatever, is like the most very very interested in it. Oh, uh, so, oh, that's good. So that is, you know, she she's so. And I think it's interesting. Theater is a much more rarefied. I used to cover theater, right? So people might or may not go to the theater, but right. everyone kind of knows a little bit about comedy. Like they have, and they have opinions on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they think they, they yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like saying you cover comedy, suddenly everyone's like, oh, do you, what do you think of Amy Schumer? What do you think of Jerry Seinfeld? Whatever. Right, like, yeah. right, right. It's, it's, uh, it's like sports. You know, everyone right. kind of, for, you, for, for certain people. You know, right. Yeah. So you get, so, you, so it hasn't hurt the fact, so it hasn't hurt your cocktail party invitations. <laughs> I mean, you're still you're you've been invited you get probably get invited to you probably get invited to too many with lawyers but or whatever i do i, do. I will say that i get invited yeah to are they social yeah, they want yes. you at they're like it's probably helping your wife it's like well if you bring jason you know make sure you bring jason they're probably all saying they're probably all all saying that but what about the hours that's really kind of part of it too like comedy see this is what com- what i don't personally like about comedy is the, the late nights. Yes, yes. No, that I, I I got I had gotten used to like the eight o'clock curtains of theater and comedy. It could be like ten o'clock, nine o'clock, midnight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so what? How do you do that? What, where your kid? You just bring your kids in their pajamas and stuff, <laughs> or how do you do it? I uh, it actually is is works well because my wife comes home late, so I too late for me to make a a, ah. a Broadway show, but sometimes late enough that. I can then go out to see like a, you know, a, uh-huh. a 10 o'clock comedy show. Um, and uh, so this, so actually these, these weird and late nights oh, sort so of work. You guys worked it out. You worked it out. That's good. Do you have, do you form relationships with comedians or do you kind of feel like that's like, that's not part of your job? They're like, that's a different, you don't want to like get too chummy. I mean, I definitely try to maintain a certain distance. Uh, uh-huh. And I think it's important at the same time. You know, I, I'm a reporter, so I have all they, I and, and they all you know, yeah, you get they to know, know them. You. Yeah. And, and after years of, uh, you know, it's a very unique thing. I've been doing this long enough that I've written about people when they were n- unknown, right. and now they're stars, and they have a, you have a particular relationship with somebody who you've re- wrote about you early. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, right. So I I have a lot of at this point a lot of sources, and yeah, the uh, but it's a, it's a balancing act because I, I don't want to get too close, in which case I can't write about them. Right, 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 right. Okay, we're going to have to go soon. Um, but uh, I had a couple of, of like, uh, just like dumb quest- personal questions that I just want to know because you're here and I want to get to ask you. Yeah. So anyway, um, here's something I'm really curious about. Comedy in New York versus comedy in L.A. And personally, I'm really mad that all the comedy people I knew moved to L.A. So tell yes. me about that. Help that me rationalize That makes me mad too. It. That makes, no, I can't. I, I hate it too. It happens all the time. So what do you what do you think is the difference or what's better what's worse what would you do if you were a stand-up comic i'm a new york partisan you know so yeah the, uh, but uh i think the the kind of cli- the cliche is that like 
New York is a little more aggressive, more joke heavy. LA is, is, uh, you know, more alt and, and is more wandering at the same time. The reason New York's better is because there's more places to perform here. Uh, so if you want to get really good, if you uh, want to work a lot, it's much mm-hmm. easier to do that here mm-hmm. than it is in L.A. Um, but L.A., because it's so expensive here and you could actually live like a mm-hmm. normal life without being a huge blockbuster success in L.A., um, it, everyone, you know, at the tip, they, they, they are here for a couple of years and they go to L.A. and we keep losing a lot of talent. But then a lot of them come back. Mm-hmm. Um the um, mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the truth is I, I try to go to L.A. a couple times a year and the difference has shrunk. It's not uh, very it's, similar. It's, it's it's actually more. I mean, you could go into it, but, but pretty much it's like there's so many New York comics there and so many L.A. comics. So is one 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 city more active than the other. Or are they about the same? I think there there's mo- there's more performances per night in New York for sure, oh, but there's okay. maybe uh, there might be more. I think there are more comedians in LA because there's more jobs out there. So it's more. Well, who knows? Um, okay, so here's one more question. Um, do do you do you have any interest? This is for my art people. Do you have any interest in contemporary art or performance performance art? I'm fascinated by performance and, art. And is there any performance art that you like? Do you know? Uh, do you have an opinion on Marina Abramovic? Oh man, you hate her? No, I don't hate her. I, I do. Don't. do. <laughs> well, I, I do to, now. I, I want to hear your opinion on her. No, no, I don't. I've made fun of her. Have I you? mean, no, I used to really, really like her, and then uh, once her, she got really commercial when she did her MoMA show. Was that the turning point, the MoMA show? Yeah, so, but she's done a lot of innovation. She's an she's a really egomaniac, and she has taken advantage of artists. She has a bad rap. She has a bad rap. Do you know who Narcister is? No, who's that? That's somebody we got to talk about that later because we're not going to have time. But Narcister to me uh-huh. is like a god right now. Interesting. Yeah, a really, really talented uh, performer, visual artist. Where does she perform? Uh, she she does some kind of like um, she performs at the box a lot. I think. Okay. Uh, I mean, you look her up. Look All right, her up, I will. Look I will. her up. We've got like a minute and a half left, so I just. You know what I want to do? Yeah. I want to give a big shout out to my good friend, Alain Danziger, because his show is on right after this one. And this is a big thing here at Radio Free Brooklyn. We support each other. We want you to stay with us because the minute uh, this show is done, uh, you can listen to Elon do Lost and Rewound. He's really, really a uh, fun guy. Uh, he's doing really well. He's a director. He's directing this big show now. And just uh, a great show with talking. And he plays tapes from like the 90s and stuff like that. So uh, I want to make sure that you guys stick around. And uh, okay, maybe one more question. Why is Amy Schumer co- so controversial? We'll oh see if we can fit God. this in in one minute. I can't do that in an hour. I, th- I think it's it's mystifying. I, I think that, I mean, she's one person who I've been following since I, you know, I was the first person to write about her when she, in uh-huh. the times when she was, no one knew who she was. And I, all I'll say is that, like, I'm a connoisseur of, like, critiques. She's been slammed from the beginning. But mm-hmm. uh, nobody has taken more criticism than her. And it is uh, not that she doesn't deserve some of it because, of course, she's in the public and she's, uh, you know, flawed it. But it, it is it is it's an interesting story how polarizing she is. Yeah. And it, uh, time, time is up. But I will write about it. 